Psalm 2 and beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's been called. And we're going to look together at the second psalm. The first psalm in the collection of 150 psalms in the Psalter. The first psalm is an introductory psalm. It... um, has in it the embryo of, embryo of uh, many of the great truths, glorious truths that will be unfolded at length in the, the other psalms in the collection. So it's introductory. And I think we could say the same of the second psalm. And With, there's a number of clues, I think, that tell us that Psalm 2 is also an introduction to the whole. Um, well, for instance, you notice that Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed, and Psalm 2 ends with the phrase, blessed are all who take refuge in him. They're like two bookends. And do you know this? I only discovered this recently, that there are quite a few Hebrew editions of the Old Testament where Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are printed together as one psalm. Isn't that interesting? Both psalms end with a warning of perishing. Both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are about the fundamental division in humanity. Psalm 1 says there's a difference between the man of God, the godly man, and the ungodly man. 1 to 3, 4 to 6. That's Psalm 1. So you find the same in the second Psalm. It tells us that there's a great division in humanity between those who are pro-God and those who are anti-God. And we have to know which side of the division we're on. So this is going to be our meditation tonight. Psalm 2 is massively important. 
It's quoted, you know, no less than seven times in the New Testament. That flags up just how significant the second psalm is for the New Testament writers and to the mind of the Holy Spirit. It speaks to our time still and our situation with a relevance that grabs our attention. You know, the world we live in tonight is a noisy place. And there are all sorts of voices clamoring for our attention. And we need to be able to discern the voice to listen to. So we're going to look at four voices that we'll find in this psalm together tonight. I want you to follow me very closely because this is a heavy burden on the hearts of many of us that our nation is so far from God and is so mixed up about the things of God. We're listening to the wrong people. We're listening to the pundits on television. We're reading the novels and the literature that has no room for God. Uh, everywhere in the media, on the television, in the internet, there's a great propaganda war going on, you know. And so many voices want our attention. So in Psalm 2, we're going to find four of them. I want you to notice the structure of the psalm, would you, for a moment. You notice that verses 1 to um, to 3 are printed together, and then there's a little gap in many of your Bibles will have this if you're reading NIV or ESV. Uh, There's a little gap that tells you that that's the end of the paragraph, and then there's 4 to 6 and another little gap, Seven to nine, a little little gap, and the closing three verses. So it's built up of four bits, stanzas we call them, and paragraphs if you like. And in each of these stanzas we hear a different voice speaking. I'm indebted to Warren Wiersbe for pointing this out in his little commentary on the psalm. Now, I want to suggest to you, for instance, that in the opening verses, 1 to 3, we have the voice of the nations. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is, this, we're listening to the voice of the nations, of the rulers, of the great of this world. And it's clear that it's a world in rebellion against God. It tells us, it reminds us that in our own day there is a mass movement of defiance against God and an unholy alliance of the many and the mighty. It's a worldwide rebellion. The voice of the nations. 
And the key word in this paragraph is the word against. It occurs more than once. So it tells us three things about where the nations stand, where the world in general stands tonight. It stands, number one, against God. Against the Lord, it says in verse 2. It's anti-God. Secondly, it stands against his Christ, his anointed one. It is against his anointed, verse 2 again. And finally, it's against his law, because the picture here is of an animal being restrained by a yoke, a restless animal restrained by a yoke and here are people saying let us burst their bronze apart and cast away their cords from us you see one of the things God uses to restrain evil in the world is his law a law which is written into the consciences programmed into the conscience and mind of every man, woman and child It gives us a sense of right and wrong. And that law, like a yoke, prevents much of the evil that this world would be swamped by tonight if it were not for the restraining power of the Holy Spirit using very often the Ten Commandments in the conscience of individuals to restrain them. Now, here's a world then that is anti-God, anti-Christ, and anti-law. The the world doesn't want to be restrained. That's the way we are by nature. the, the, The Bible says the natural mind is enmity toward God. That's a very strong phrase. It doesn't say the natural mind is at enmity toward God. It says the natural mind is enmity toward God. The thing itself, it couldn't be more opposed. We don't want to be restrained. We want to, we want to be our own God. We say with Pharaoh, who is the law that I should serve him? What right has God to tell me what to do? I'm going to be my own God. We don't want restraint, we want freedom. Freedom is the watchword of so much that's going on around us, but it leads straight into slavery. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. You turn your back on God and this is where you'll end up. Not knowing freedom, but slavery. Jesus said, the purpose there, he said, Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. It's easy to get along. It, you know, it's congenial getting along with God's, God's law once you come to know him. Once you know him for yourself. His commandments are not grievous. 
I'm reminded of the saying of P.T. Forsyth, the Congregationalist leader of a hundred years ago. And he said this, The purpose in life is not to find your freedom. The purpose of life is to find your master. Hallelujah. Have you discovered that? Once you've discovered Christ, you'll know freedom. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So mankind is in revolt, and we need to notice how this revolt develops. It begins in verse 1 with the people plotting. It begins with smoldering anger against God and secret scheming. And then they start collaborating. The rulers take counsel together. It's developing, you see, it's gathering. And interestingly, that word, take counsel, is the same Hebrew word as you have in Psalm 1 when it's talking about the godly man meditating, chewing over, literally, the word of God. But they're not chewing over the word of God, these kings and rulers. They're plotting to dethrone God and get rid of him. And then finally, what begins in private and in secret and then gets plotted and talked about and planned eventually becomes whispered treason, breaks out into open defiance. Now you see that particularly at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thinking of the way in which these very words are quoted in the New Testament if you turn to Acts chapter 4 Acts chapter 4 and verse 25 the early church is praying they're undergoing persecution the world wants to be rid of them shut them up but they come to God to ask for more boldness to preach the word. I like that. They didn't ask that the persecution be taken away. They asked for more boldness to keep on preaching. And God immediately answered it, as the word goes on to say. But here's the quotation from Psalm 2. Let's read from verse 25. God, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, here's the quote, Why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Unquote. For truly, in this city, in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then they prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now that tells us that the clearest illustration of this orchestrated enmity against God is to be found at the when you come to the treatment that Jesus was meted out. And uh, it tells us that Pontius Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas and Ananias and all of them put together and the crowd are a clear proof and a fulfillment of Psalm 2. But it's still going on today. Uh, let me um, tell you a little bit about that. Do you know that the BBC is confessedly anti Christian? It's the same spirit, isn't it? That's at work everywhere in the world. Over the, my lifetime, I've seen the progression of it all in the universities yeah. and now in our schools and our kids are being taught this from the earliest days. And you know there was a, a meeting um, on September the 30th, 2007 of Four prominent atheists. There was Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett, and they met at Hitchens's residence in Washington, D.C. for a private, two-hour, unmoderated discussion. And the event was videotaped, and you can find it on the internet. But at that meeting... Those men covenanted, covenanted together to come out publicly and militantly against anything to do with God. It marked the emergence of what's been called the new atheism. Militant atheism, that is. So in the world, that's the voice that you're going to hear everywhere. The voice of defiance. But you know there's a voice that's far more powerful than all those voices put together. And it's the voice that we hear in the next stanza, verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. 
then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What has all man's rage and rebellion accomplished? It hasn't silenced God. God is still on the throne. In fact, it's, he's said here to be sitting down. He's not troubled by it. He's on an immovable throne. He has not abdicated it, nor ever will. And how does God react to their scheming? He reacts threefold. He reacts with laughter, with derision, and displeasure. First of all, with laughter. Do you believe that God has a sense of humor? We've got it in our Bible reading tonight. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He chuckles to himself as he sees the futile efforts of these puny men arrayed against him, the Almighty. He laughs. It comes back to my mind some of the places I preached at in Eastern Europe. And more than one occasion I preached in a building that used to be the communist headquarters in that town where kids were indoctrinated with atheism. I've seen some of their, ta- their old textbooks. Do you know in Albania there was a dictator called Anva Hodges? And... Um, he used to boast that Albania was uh, the most atheistic state in the world, even more atheistic than communist China. Well, Hodges has died and he's passed off the scene. But in a house that he built for himself, a great mansion, became what is today a seminary teaching the word of God. There's an irony about that, a glorious irony. Yes, God's got a sense of humor. God reacts with laughter. He reacts with derision. Verse 4, He holds them in derision. contemptuous of their grand alliance. He is the Almighty. Then with this displeasure, thirdly, in verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So God's throne is secure. Don't you worry your head about God can look after himself. God will bring these men up short. They will answer to him one day. They can never touch his throne. He has installed his king. And they'll never come to be uninstalled. The kings and kingdoms of the earth 
the Bible says, Revelation 11:15, the kingdoms of the earth shall become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. And again the scripture says, he must reign until all his enemies are made his footstool. The voice of the Father reminds us that no rebels can ever win against God. And his voice is the one that will have the final say. My friend, I don't know where you stand tonight, but whatever you do, if you try to fight God, oh, don't persist in that course. Don't have God against you because you cannot prevail. You cannot win. The voice of the Father. And when when we come to verses 7 to 9, we have, I think, the voice of the Son the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Read it carefully. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, that means that it's God the Father, the Lord, talking to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage in the ends of the earth your possession. So it's Christ who's speaking and is reminding us of what the Father has said to him. When did he say it? I think he said it before the foundation of the world. What we're listening to here is a rehearsal, a repeat if you like, of that wonderful thing that we call the, the covenant of redemption. Which was a covenant between God the Father and God the Son before the foundation of the world, before the universe existed. God the Father said to his Son, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you victorious. You're going to be the center of all my purposes. I'm going to give the nations to you. I'm going to give the healing for your inheritance. And that's been fulfilled every day of the, since Calvary. The voice of the, of the Son reminding us that the Father has affirmed three things about him. First of all, he's affirmed Christ's person, his eternal sonship. You are my Son. Now, if he said that before the foundation of the world, then I believe in the eternal sonship of Christ. Now, there there, there are some some folk who were started off evangelicals, but they they came to a position eventually of not believing that Jesus was eternally the Son of God. But he only became the Son of God at Bethlehem or whatever. That's that's not what my Bible teaches me. No. Tells me that he was the son before the foundation of the world. And supremely at the resurrection the Lord Jesus was affirmed to be the son because this verse is quoted of the resurrection in the New Testament. It seems to me that when we come to think about this great relationship between father and son in the Godhead that we I mean, boggles at it. We can't take it in. That Jesus is, 
is the Son of God by eternal generation. Every day God says to his Son, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. We can't get our heads around that. God affirms his person. And then, and has put it in a decree according to our text this evening. God settled it, that the future belongs to Christ. Then, he, de- he also affirms his program, verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the, heathen, the nations your your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession do you remember when Jesus is praying to the Father in what really is the Lord's Prayer John 17 um, Jesus says to his Father um, you've given me everyone that's come to me yeah yeah they were gods. He gave them to his son. And every one of them is elect in the purposes of God from before the foundation of the world. And Jesus says, I've kept them. I'm going to unite them. I'm going to sanctify them. They're going to share my glory in the world to come. That's God's program. God's plan for this age is that there will be rebels who bow the knee to Christ in willing submission. That's the covenant of grace. And all over the world it's happening today. Hundreds of thousands of million and millions in, in Iran that we barely have, have got an inkling about have been turning to God. The Father gave them to the Son. He'll lose none of them. The voice of the Son. Now there's one more stanza. And I want to suggest to you that this is the voice of the Holy Spirit. We listen to the Holy Spirit speaking here when he gives us wonderful advice, verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the tender voice of patient love. Waiting for rebels to get on their knees and surrender. Uh, bringing those elect that have been given by the Father to the Son to the place of salvation as they surrender to Christ and give up their enmity. The voice of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, be wise, be warned. So there are two things in this final stanza. One is an invitation and the other is a warning. Here's the invitation. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. 
find that uh, as a Westerner not uh, very easy to understand, but at least in cultures and in Bible times it would be understood rather easier. It's the kiss of homage that's been referred to. Do you remember in the story of Samuel anointing Saul as king? It says that Saul kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord... Uh, sorry, it's Samuel speaking. He's anointing Saul and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander? So the kiss was a kiss of allegiance and surrender and acknowledgement that he was king. And in the similar vein, we have an illustration in the book of Esther where the king holds out to Esther, his wife, the golden scepter that was in his hand. She took her life into his, her hands when she went into the king that day. Do you remember? But she kissed the scepter and touched the top of the scepter according to the sacred record. It was a sign of loyalty. You know, what happens when the gospel is preached is really that our Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, holds out the scepter of his grace to everyone who is off listening to this offer that's in the gospel. That if they'll only surrender and bow the knee to him and trust him, they'll be forgiven. It's a sign of loyalty. So here's the Holy Spirit speaking and he's saying in every heart that's listening, really listening, bend the knee, bow the knee. That's the invitation. Isaiah says, we've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Holy Spirit is speaking like that here tonight. If there's a rebel still here, then listen to the voice of the Spirit of God and his tender invitation. But you notice there's also a warning. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. How urgently the Holy Spirit presses this. One day soon Christ will return and will come back, the Bible says, taking vengeance on all those that do not obey the gospel. There will be no hiding place from him when he comes on the day of his wrath. The Bible's teaching is, whereas there is no hiding from Christ when he comes, there is a refuge in Christ. You can hide in him. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Then you're safe. Safe for eternity. So to the undecided, I want to say tonight, and it's not simply my invitation it's the Holy Spirit 
no less himself that says this in your mind now, isn't it? Here's the offer. Here's the warning. In the light of them both, will you not resign yourself to Christ? Change sides tonight. Can you enlist him for, for Jesus? Stand out for him. Tomorrow when you go back to work. Stand out on Christ's side when it comes to the issue. Lay down your arms and put your hope and your trust in him. I want to leave you with the tender words of the Holy Spirit. This psalm that we've been looking at concludes, you notice, with a beatitude. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Are you in Christ tonight? That's the only safe place to be. We're conscious this evening, aren't we, that the Spirit of God is here. He's the preacher. You can't can't let that opportunity pass quickly. Someone needs to make a decision here tonight under the influence of the Spirit of God to come on the list for our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the old hymnist, make me a captive Lord and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword and I shall conqueror be. Let's bow in his presence.